Welcome to What's Your Beef? What's Your Beef is proudly supported by Suncorp Bank, helping local producers through the ups and downs since 1902. Each week we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Hello, I'm Jane Cudahy and this is What's Your Beef? Since the start of this podcast, we've heard some incredible voices from all over the Australian beef industry, producers, agents, chefs and ring announcers. But there's an army of beef enthusiasts right across the country that we haven't paid tribute to and quite often when we're gazing at the magnificence of breed specimens in the centre ring or the glory of the champion carcass, we don't think about exactly who is involved in getting it there. Departments of agriculture across Australia have always had a research and development team, usually represented in our paddocks by extension officers. They are the ones dragging us to field days to champion new technologies or turning up at smoko time to teach us to analyse our pasture. They are often the unsung heroes of our production systems, quietly pushing us to get more efficiencies out of everything from pasture, nutrition and herd management. Bernie English and Joe Rolfe are two old beefos, or beef extension officers, albeit these days they hold well-deserved senior positions in Mariba in far north Queensland and have been recognised for their contributions by industry several times. Gentlemen, you've both been beef extension officers for a long time, but, you know, you've come from somewhere before that. So how did you first get into the department and why? Bernie English here. So I grew up on a dairy farm on the Atherton Tableland, and as I tell a lot of people, dairy, you know, milking cows every day is good for you. And um, then via Gatton and then into the department at Innisfail, where they had quite a large um, pasture research team based on the coast there. Um, I joined the department in 1971, and that feed-based team, I might, you might call it, down at Innisfail there, um, there was a big expansion into beef cattle in the early 70s and they were looking at a lot of soils there that had been ignored by the cane farmers. So there was a lot of issues with soil fertility and productivity on the wet coast and they had a very big team there with introducing new grasses and legumes, how to grow them and manage them, what fertiliser to use, how to manage the cattle on the pasture. So it was a great learning experience starting in the department with the likes of um, Robin Bruce and Jimmy Tidesall, Bill Mallow, the manager down there, because we, we had new pasture species being evaluated, fertiliser trials going on, grazing trials going on at Uchi Creek, a substation, so it was very active and um, a great learning experience for a, a young person out of Gatton. And um, But anyway, I then moved from uh, South Johnson Research Station to a new setup there at Walkerman Research Station under John Hopkinson and looking at all these new pasture sea, uh, plants that we're bringing in from around the world, a lot of the legumes from South Central America, a lot of the grasses from Africa. And seed was a big issue, you know. We didn't have much seed to plant and there was a new team put together by John Hopkinson to look into how do we produce seed of all these new grasses and legumes and I thought that might be challenging. So I moved up onto the tableland to Walkerman and spent a few years there with John, you know, with um, pasture seed production on the tableland here which was very suitable for seed production, probably the best place in the tropical world for pasture, tropical pasture seed production 
and John was a world leader in that field, so that was another great mentor I had um, looking at all the different grasses and legumes and seed production. I then moved into Mareeba when the DAF, or it was DPI then. Still start, DPI. I still st- think of it as DPI. Yeah, I have to yeah. remind myself. True, true <laughs> We've gone through a lot of different names and abbreviations over the years. Business so, cards, lots of business cards. Yeah, but farmers, <laughs> producers that we work with still refer to us as the DPI, even though we're DAF now. So then uh, there was a live export section of um, the DPI and Jim Kernow and I were part of that in Mareeba here. So I, I moved from Walkerman into Mareeba here, part of the DPI's um, live export under, um, it was under Les Wicksteed, under Lapo. But that was very exciting. Um, up into Asia there with the live export business, blah, blah. And that evolved into the beef extension role I'm in now, where um, we've sort of got a team together and under Joe's leadership and um, and I think we've now sort of got a really p- good partnership with the feed base team out of Walkerman and um, and under Joe's leadership it was a it was another string to our bow wasn't it Joe that Joe could see that extension officers might be um, in for the extension somewhere down the track and we need to have a lot more research in our um, in our uh, daily work or weekly work or whatever. And so now we've got, as well as extension projects, we've got research projects where we're evaluating pastures, we're weighing cattle in grazing trials. And um, I, I, I've been very lucky in my in my work history having some great mentors and I've learnt a lot off a lot of different DPI and producers because a lot of the good lessons you learn in this game is off producers, whether it's doing the right thing or the wrong thing. It's still a lesson to you. And the team, the, the team I'm in, uh, extension and feed-based team I'm in now, is the best I've been in in, in my whole career. You don't have to say that because your boss is sitting next to no, you. No, no. <laughs> Anyone in our team will vouch that they, they just love working in this team because we all get on so well together. Joe works so hard on keeping that team culture. We have regular meetings and get-togethers and um, you never seen anything like it when we all get together. It's just It's just like after a football match. Yeah, I was going to say, I know, I have some idea, actually. <laughs> uh, and Joe, while, while we're there, how did you first come into this scene? Jane, I actually, so we're sitting in Mareeba now, Jane, and I, uh, I started in Mareeba in 1990, so uh, it's the 30 years ago, been with uh, then DPI, um, it went to Didi, and now back to DAF, thank goodness agriculture's back in the name, but um, and spent six months in, um, in Mareeba, Met uh, some very experienced people here, some great mentors uh, in Mareeba, and and then to Charters Towers, where I was originally appointed. As Bernie said, just um, how incredibly uh, important it was to have those older mentors uh, at that stage of my career. Coming from uh, uh, New South Wales um, sheep property, it was just great to uh, have the likes of Peter Smith and Bob Shepherd, and uh, to work in that Dalrymple Shire. Um, yeah, it was. I started off there as um, mainly around land management, soil conservation, and my work extended out uh, basically in my first few weeks out to the Curry and uh, a lot of work in, in the West, and I kept a lot of that going around um, Huondon, Prairie, Richmond, as well as uh, a lot of work around Charters Towers. And That's quite the patch. That's quite yeah. a few miles there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was great. It's just uh, the diversity of country, 
uh, diversity of um, beef producers and their families. It was uh, just a great period from 1990 through to 2002, um, working in that and, and, and getting my head around um, the complexities of, of the beef businesses um, across that whole area, getting to know the producers, um, learning so much, and, uh, yeah, developing a lot of, I guess, trust and rapport and networks. And, uh, and I left there in uh, 2002 to come up and join the Mariba team. And um, that's really been another great step and um, once again widen the, the industry networks right into the Gulf, up into Cape York, uh, into the Northern Gulf, Southern Gulf. Um, yeah, just fantastic to be part of a, a, a dynamic team where there is that research and extension going on. So important, I think, with any of our teams in the department that we have that uh, research coupled with the extension. We always need to be trying to find new ways and um, it's a bit tough now. There's a, a lot of low-hanging fruit we've researched. Uh, we know a lot about the reproductive system of cows. We know a lot about nutrition, but we've still got to keep keep pushing that research envelope to find the, the next productivity gain, I guess, for producers. And certainly one of them is around the feed base. Yeah. And now we'll go into that because there's quite a few things that I want to grill you both on. But I guess first and foremost, you know, you're both beef extension officers and certainly on this podcast we hear a lot from beef producers you go to sales you see the end product and we we see you know what's in the paddock quite quite often but there is so much work that goes into getting a beast into a sale or on your plate or whatever so what role do you see DAF playing and the likes of yourselves and and your counterparts all over the country uh, in beef production in Australia? Well, I, I think critically now we, we have to walk a mile uh, in the producer's shoes and understand the businesses they're running and what, what, what advice we provide, what research and development we're doing has to fit into that complex business, whether it's around the pastures, whether it's around uh, the herd productivity, looking after weaners, um, whether it's around the business, the important aspects of, of, of running a good business nowadays. I see that all of that has to fit, no matter where the, where the researchers are, what they're doing, what the extension officers are doing, we have to fit into um, that often complex, um, extensive beef business that they're running. And, and do you find that more critical, say, now than it was 20 years ago? Do you feel like there's just more pressure that what you give producers has to be relevant and applicable? Do you find that there is more pressure to sort of give them the silver bullet? Yeah, well, there is, and there's there's no one to put us in our place quicker than producers because their their livelihood depends on it. And I think years ago, we had a vast team that just concentrated on uh, some people were reproduction specialists, some were um, uh, stylos, some pasture specialists, um, and and they really you know stayed within their silo. We can't afford to do that now. Now producers want um, they they want want to see things integrated into their their system and into the challenges they face and um, in particular you know they're, they're operating in an incredibly um, hostile environment in terms of, uh, of markets in terms of seasons um, rainfall variability um, you know the a lot of the um, the scale of the properties uh, managing those so there's a, a lot of pressures that the families that are running the businesses themselves so we, we have to try to um, whatever we do work First and foremost is, is how do you how do you help those 
yeah. uh, families, those beef producing families. Yeah. I think that with the um, large increase in land prices in our northern patch, that this pressure is going to be increasing because we've seen since 2016 a, a substantial increase in the price of cattle. Up until then, the cost price squeeze really had properties under pressure. You know, things were sort of going backwards. Trucks weren't getting replaced. Repairs weren't happening, etc. because things were very tough. 2016, there's been a big turnaround in the cattle price. Money's come back into the industry a little bit and, you know, people can afford to update, repairs get done, um, maybe sort of look into the future with a bit more positiveness. Um, but we've also seen this huge rise in, you know, the productivity of the land, uh, the, this disconnect with land prices and the productivity of the land. So all of a sudden, land prices have taken off and it doesn't reflect what you can produce off that property. And, and so those businesses are going to be under a lot more pressure. Like Joe's just covered a lot of those things that are important. They're going to become more important into the future because all the newer players into the industry are paying huge prices for land and they're going to be under a lot of pressure into the future because, as Joe said, you know, that we've got the market variability, the seasonal variability. Northern Australia, we do get more reliable rainfall than southern Australia, but we've also got a lot of poor soils, you know, and we've got a lot of big properties and expensive to run, low productivity of the cattle. We've serve, serviced different markets in the north here with, even though live exports only 10 to 15% of the Australian cattle turnoff, in the north it's a bit more important because we, we mainly service the live export out of Darwin and Townsville, etc. Um, so I think the, the BFO of the future, um, like our team, we, we can handle most things on a beef business right from land management, pasture management, animal or herd husbandry, etc. your marketing, your, your business management, your succession. Our team, thank goodness, we can handle all those aspects of, the, of a business and I think that's going to be the way of the future for a, a beef extension officer. He needs to get the confidence of the industry he needs to show that he's useful, and, and the only way you usually do that is you don't run a nine-to-five job. You run a job that works at their, the industry's pace, whether it's the weekend, it's night, day. You've got to, you get into bed with them, <laughs> and you'll find that they'll wow. soon trust you. They'll <laughs> soon I... trust you, and, and they'll be seeking your advice because you, if you treat this as a nine-to-five job, You'll soon, you'll, you'll soon won't be real relevant to the industry. You know? And do you find people are calling on you more? Like that, that is the relationship. And I think, you know, I'm not, you're an elder statesman of this area in this field. So you would have noticed a lot of changes over the years. Do you feel like people are taking on your advice on board more now than what they were? Oh, definitely, years ago? Def- definitely you're when you're a young whippersnipper. Yeah, when, when you're a young whippersnipper, they maybe don't ring you up as much, but. Certainly you get to my age there and you've got a lot of contacts and you've seen a lot of things and you get a lot of experience and people value that because you've been down a few dry gullies and maybe you can help someone not go down there as well. And I think, Jane, we we learn so much from the producers we work with, young and old, um, and you also learn a few things not to do and that's, that's invaluable because you can keep taking that back to the industry. So what are you saying to your younger beef extension <clears throat> officers then? Because, you know, you're sitting here as the, the, your, your peers refer to, the, to you as the old schoolers, which is great. But then, you know, you've just said trust and, and that ability for people to call you at any time of the day or night. What are you saying to your young fellas? 
Well, the, the first thing I encourage, you know, um, our, our team, particularly with one of our projects right down to Charleville, out to the northwest through Longreach even as part of one project team called Grazing Futures, is um, to, to get out one-on-one with people. No matter what we do with, uh, with workshops, with um, seminars, uh, with field days, whatever, we all need to maintain that one-on-one contact with producers on property. Do you find too the same people keep turning up to those things all the time and that, you know, when you do go out one-on-one and you build that rapport with people that you're actually, your message gets through a bit more? I think so, yeah. It's just so, it's so critical for, for what we do and I think it's really important for those producers and, and I think you're right. There, there are a lot of the industry, if we don't go to that effort, we, um, we don't get to work with them, Jane. And, and workshops, Jane, are very good, are very good to make awareness of new technology or what some producers <clears throat> doing. And then a producer goes home and he has a bit of a think about it while he's running around checking the waters or putting the lick out. And then he might ring you up and, and you, if you go out there and he'll say, well, if I'm going to implement, you know, um, control mating in my heifers or I'm going to do such and such, I've just heard at the workshop, what do you think I should be doing here, here? And that's, that's where that backup becomes very important to sort of as the mechanism of change. A lot of people go to workshops and talk to other producers and I think that's important. A lot of producers who never go anywhere aren't aware of what other you know, innovative practices are being used in their district, etc. So if you don't go out of your valley, and this is a lesson that was taught to me very well by a Greg Brown, who's a, who's a great producer around the, around the north, and he said, you've got to get out of your valley. And, and, and since I'd met Greg Brown, and he's taken me down into central Queensland, southern Queensland, going to good producers' places, and encouraged me to go to Western Australia, Tasmania, go go everywhere, get out of the valley, see what other people are doing, and you'd say, now, what would I learn in Tasmania? You know, Northern Australia and Tasmania, completely different, but there's some great lessons there showing me how abattoirs and producers can work together for both for both's benefit in supply chain work, you know, in Northern Tasmania there with Greenhams. And so there's lessons everywhere out of the valley, and those producers that never go to any meetings or workshops or whatever you want to call them, yeah, they're not doing their business money much justice. Well, I think too, people are becoming a bit less social. Everyone's so busy, there's more pressure on to just sort of be at home and slog it out. So there's less field days, there's less socialising, there's less, you know, bush christenings and that sort of thing where you get to go over and have a little sticky beak while you're over there. And I think that's half the battle and it, it would is. be for it you is. too. It just, is. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Well, going back to your <laughs> your old schoolingness, um, what major changes have you seen in Northern Australia beef production over the last 30 years? Um, well, that's a, that's a, there's, a, there's a lot of things, that have, uh, good things that have happened and, and I want Joe to touch on the land condition. If we start from the, you know, the feed-based side of it, which is the most important part of a, of a beef industry is having the cows having a bit of grass to eat every day. Um, and this ties into the, we're under more pressure to be more sustainable too. We are. Like this it's, is, it's a big word is, now yeah. is selling food um, or our reputation or whether we want to talk about greenhouse gases or whatever. We, you know, sustainability, doing the right thing, animal welfare. It's a big issue these as we move forward, you know, in the food industry. And the Northern Australia, you know, we've, we've got a few issues like, I don't know if this is the point to bring them up, but, you know, land condition is a big issue. And Joe's, um, just writing an excellent paper there. Um, and I'll let Joe sort of explain it more, but it, it's certainly, um, it's identifying that, the, the, the first space in this business is having a breakfast for the cows every day 
and we've got to get that right first. You know, and maybe I'm just being a little bit naive, but I would have thought that land conditioning and having breakfast for the cows every day is is quite basic and can... fairly fairly elementary. You yeah. think? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's uh, it is, but but once again, back to this seasonal variability and um, the amount of you're trying to manage that, Jane, the, the amount of places that um, run out of grass in September every year um, in several years in 10. Um, and, and there's other people don't really manage it well. So it's still obviously a real, a really big challenge for a lot of people. And over several decades um, of, of high cattle numbers and set stocking, we'd, we're seeing a, a decline in the resource and, and ultimately that's a loss of productivity in the rangelands. Uh, and that, that's, that's a real concern for your generation coming forward. Um, how do we, how do we deal with that? The results that Bernie was just referring to since, um, around about 2003, um, with our, some of our work across the Northern Gulf, we've seen about a six to eight percent loss of uh, carrying capacity, original carrying capacity. So how is this happening in this era then? Well, once again, it's, it's, um, there's a, there's a complex range of things driving how people manage places and, uh, and obviously, uh, financial pressures, um, debt certainly drives, um, how people, how people stock, how people respond to the poorer seasons, how uh, well people can spell country. And it, it doesn't seem to matter. There's a lot of producers out there and you know some quite well that can provide some really good facts and figures on just running a few less cattle and spelling a bit of country and um, and making a, a good quid or a bit more than what you were making under heavy stocking. We've got Wombiana, not far from you there. Over to, uh, cattle first went into Wombiana in 1997. So once again, showing the advantages of that lighter stocking as well and the economic advantages as well. But when the pressure comes on, we seem to... Uh, under under maybe financial pressure and other pressures um, seem to go back to high cattle numbers. That must be incredibly frustrating from your point of view. How do you manage that? Well, I, I think we've got to be a bit careful judging. You know, there, there's um, there's a lot of things happening out there with land condition and productivity decline like tree thickening and you know all about that, uh, where you're from. But once again, our results have shown since two thousand and three about a 35 percent increase in in trees that's the native timber and since 1991 with some other sites the tree thickening has doubled so there's yeah it we've got to be careful about judging why things have happened but we just keep need to keep moving forward with um the current generation old and and new generations and um and just keep encouraging um these practices that one is is running these stocking rates that sort of we can maintain in most years, um, and and another one is getting some some spelling wet season spelling across the country. And the the producers that have done that don't see an immediate turnaround, Jane. It's uh, quite often could be a decade to see much change. But those producers are in the game in the spelling game for you know maybe fifteen twenty percent of their place every year. So when there is a good year. And they they do get under it, and that's when they get the good response. But I guess we can't think that after several decades of, say, running country a bit hard, that we're going to see uh, change overnight. And this is a big 
challenge for your generation coming through. Bernie mentioned the price of properties. So we're seeing buoyant prices at the moment, aren't we? You know, I saw the, saw the grid yesterday at Live Export as well. Uh, fantastic prices. And we've seen them for quite a few years now. But the property prices are also quite high. And so there's still going to be these pressures for your generation. Oh, for sure. And Bernie, you just going back to that, you mentioned just as we were chatting before, with the change of generation, there is a more openness for change and talking about some of the things that Joe touched on uh, in terms of making changes at a grass level. Yeah, de- Jane has been definitely, like we've um, worked with a, lot, a couple of young producer groups now over the last five years and um, when younger producers get the reins of the property, etc., we're finding that they're adopting all that basic technology that we know that will be big profit drivers on their property, like you know, getting the grass cattle balance right, getting the phosphorus feeding in the wet season to their cattle, um, managing the herd a little bit better, maybe with a bit of you know, preg testing and segrega- segregation, um, and mark- not marketing younger cattle anymore and, and, and keeping you know, cattle to an older age or wait before they market them. We're finding the younger producers are very keen to adopt all that technology that we've been sort of marching around the bush, I feel, beating the drum, boom bidi boom bidi boom and, and not many takers, you know, but the circus seems to be getting more attractive to the to the younger generation and we're getting we've got some marvellous um younger producers coming through and they're just, you know, they're feeding phosphorus, they're, they're managing their properties with the grass supply. And it is a tricky business because Joe touched on it. And, um, and, and our grazing futures project in the West, you know, where we nearly got drought or dry times on nearly all the time somewhere. And the producers who handle it well, you know, they, like say at Georgetown, we might recommend that you lock up 20% of your country every year. Whereas at Bullia, that might need to be 40% because your rainfall variability is, is that much higher. Um, they have the drier your environment, the less cows you should have, and you know more growing cattle. So it gives you a lot of flexibility when things go tough that you can sell down a lot of you know your your males and females, etc. Maybe keep your core breeders a little bit longer. Um, blokes who sort of stop relying on surface water and, and get more bore infrastructure. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et so there's a lot of things that we notice that the successful producers handling our climate, handling the ups and downs of the beef industry, and um, the younger generation. We, we take a, a tour around properties where we reckon they're doing a good job, and um, the younger producers they seem to get their snout in the trough and get into it, sort of thing. You know. Why do you think that is? Why do you think? I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 you're I, not going to argue with it though. So no. you just, just ride that wave. Yeah. Um, while you touched on producer groups, that you know, uh, DAF, I guess, and department departments have seen a squeeze over the last decade or so. Siros shrinking. Some of those research private research bodies are shrinking. What role do you see these producer groups? having in conjunction with some of your research and development going forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just so important, Jane, and yeah, you'll, you'll be aware of the NB2 program um, and it's, uh, it's about to be launched, obviously, and it, it's going to rely um, one of the, the uh, pillars of it are, are going to be the producer groups driving some of the R&D and, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's just so important. But there, there are, as, as perhaps um, our line or our services those without fear or favour because we don't try and hock a product or whatever. Mm. If if they do decline into the future, it's going to be really important for um, 
producers to to look at look objectively at what's put up, what's put to them. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of products and services on the market now that um, uh, you you just need to look at carefully, and um, there there might be claims of incredible weight gains or um, incredible mm-hmm. cattle performance from feeding a very small amount of something. But it's just really important that producers and producer groups look at those um, products and uh, look at some objective, you know, weigh a few cattle, um, always question it. And I think this generation will. I don't think they'll be snowed by some of that, you know. Maybe that's the early adopters too with producer groups. You have that ability to, you know, if someone is trialling something or having a go, you've got those close contact to be able to see if whether it'll be uh, applicable to your own operation and and we're seeing a lot lot of products and services joe said come onto the market and and things like you know uh, cell grazing or and we get this word holistic or what's the other word regenerative you know and there's a lot of good stuff in there and then there's always a little bit of a twist at the end of it you know that's but it says that if you do this you can increase your cattle numbers and that's that's sort of they sell a good message, but then there's often a little twist in there that, yeah, you can run more cattle, and we know often that you can't. But there's some of the products that are on the market that probably do a very good job in a particular place, but then sort of it gets marketed all across the industry, and that's where Joe was sort of saying, I think the producers and the younger producers, they've got to get together, maybe you know use a bit of the new technology like walkover weighing and say, right, now half the animals are going to get this product and half aren't. And we can evaluate it in our environment, in, you know, in our district. And I think that's going to have to be the way of the future. If da- you know, DAF and the silos and those sort of um, usual research uh, people sort of start to shrink a bit, producer groups will have to start evaluating those sorts of things for their for themselves. I think, and it'd be good to think that MLA might even support that. You know, be a bit more forthcoming with money and make it a little bit less complex. But um, the actually evaluating um, new grazing practices when and the big one now is putting all your cattle together you know and put them all in a paddock you know for three or four months and then they move on into another paddock after the first round maybe etc etc and you can increase your cattle numbers well issues like that are very hard for producer groups to evaluate just look at Wambiana, which has been running Joe for 22, three years. Three years. It's one of the longest projects in the country, it is, isn't it? And, and it's shown that excellent. You can back off on your numbers and make more money. That's the big message. But how do you? How does a producer group run a project for 22 years to evaluate a new grazing methodology? And that's that is going to be very difficult for producers because they just as we seem to be shrinking. These sorts, there's a lot more of that around. I don't know why, but um, there seems to be a lot of sort of uh, people pushing another other agendas on grazing practices for sure. What about drought proofing? That's quite a you know nice little catchphrase that's thrown around politically, probably more so anything else. But you know, as you mentioned, we live in a variable part of the world. So how do you see that particular issue? Well, as, as Bernie said, and I think I said it's probably earlier. Some people do it quite well, and. Uh, but with this Grazing Futures um, program uh, we're, we're working on, uh, the project is actually under the Drought and Climate Adaptation Program, which is a $21 million program from the, um, through the department and pulling a whole lot of different partners and projects. But, yeah, that's that's the thrust of it. But the incredible challenges, Jane, you move from um, 35% rainfall variability at Georgetown to 60% at Bullia to um, 
even more down in the south southwest. So, yeah, it, it it is a really tough gig managing a livestock business in that in that environment. But we've had some fantastic economic modelling from uh, Fred Chudley and Marie Bowen, um, looking at what producers could do around that Charleville area, what they could do on that northern downs around um, uh, Richmond, Julia Creek, also in the northern Gulf and around Longreach, and some some quite rigorous um, economic uh, analysis of those options. And as Bernie said, one of them certainly is um, around maybe running more growing cattle and having that flexibility. When you've got a breeder herd, it's very tough to respond year in, year out with these seasons. But I think that the drought the drought resilience has got to be linked to business resilience and got to be linked to profit, and uh, that's got to be about building equity as well. But the other part of it is the landscape's getting a bit tired. It's had a fair run trying to produce for us. So how how we how we start to try to restore that productivity across our rangelands is a, is going to be challenging. But profitability and uh, having good equity levels it's just so critical. And even though we've got buoyant prices now, it's likely that even the generation coming through are going to have quite significant debt burdens. You've mentioned quite a few of the challenges um, coming forward. What are you celebrating in the beef industry? You know, surely you must have had some wins between you. Certainly now, since we mentioned before 2016, where we've had a a significant turnaround in the cattle prices, which has allowed the producers to get a, a bit ahead of that cost price squeeze, we've seen a lot more pasture development in the north, and that's one of our advantages in the north. You know, as we go further north in Australia, we get uh, more reliable rainfall. We don't have those really bad droughts that we do have as we go south and west in Australia. And, um, and pasture development, which is a great, can be a great boost to your productivity and your property. And as Joe was just saying, profitability and equity level to keep your business safe through thick and thin. So we've seen a lot of pasture development and, um, and, and it's great that we're in that space. You know, we're doing work with, uh, at Pinarendi on, um, improved pasture and redlands, the new Lakina. But we're also got a good little trial there with fertilizing, um, buffalo grass and secker and, and getting weight gain figures there. And Brett Blenner on Gosh, and he's, he's, uh, cooperating very well with us on several projects. And, um, he's weighing cattle on his redlands and improved pastures. And we're comparing that to productivity on the native pastures. So, we're in the north here in our patch. We're really pushing that, you know, there is an opportunity for a lot of development with your pasture base. And, um, our feed base team under Kendrick, um, Cox out at Walkham and they're, they're looking at a big range of new grasses and legumes, you know, right from south of Charters Towers out to Richmond, north up through into Normanton, et cetera, over to Gregory Joe, you know, the Desmanthus. Um, you know, so there's a lot of work happening in our area with new pasture species which do give you better stocking rate, does give you better live weight gain, and so you get a better weight for age animal, which improves your bottom line, etc. So that's one big change that we've seen since the a bit of money's come back into the industry is that pasture development side. And the old the old usuals, you know, Secker, Verano, you know, there's a bit lot more of that has been seeded over the last few seasons too. What about you, Joe? What are your big wins? Well, I mean, there's a recent win, I think, with um, the advancing beef leaders. Um, that's that's um, a credit to, to Alison uh, Lerard and getting that, that going and um, starting off with the Northern Group and 
with plans to look um, to expand that to Central Queensland and Northwest Queensland next uh, in the next few months um, of 2021. So, what what I think is exciting about that is is our our next lot of uh, leaders at the business level, at the family level, at the community level, and you know perhaps the the likes of um, Ag Force, the likes of local councils, the likes of uh, of, of whatever. So I think that's that's really exciting. Um, I think as Bernie said, there's great options now um, around the feed base now that there's a bit more money in the, in the industry. Um, there's been a lot of great changes, really. I, I mean, you look at um, the quality of cattle um, a, a, around um, the ability of people to, to breed for the market um, and yet still maintain some some Brahmin in the tough country. Um the, the ability of people um, and families to have uh, a, a network of properties um, in the north and, and further south. Uh, yeah, you know, I think there's there's been um, some great changes across the business and uh, I only hope that we can maintain these sort of prices and, and some of these other challenges, if we can get around them, it's it's going to be a, a great period going forward. Do you feel like the, the northern industry is, not considering is not the right word, but, you know, we can operate up here quite isolated to the rest of the country in terms of our markets. Are we becoming more collective in our industry in Australia? Certainly there, Jane. I think that we're getting a lot... Like, you look at the grids now, they're very good on the cattle, and the highest grids are usually pasture-certified cattle now. And most of that is from yeah, Rockhampton further south. We don't get much MSA grading and pasture-certified labels coming out of the north the northern meatworks, you usually got to get to further south in Australia where we got better um, weight for age and softer cattle, which are easy to grade for um, MSA and pasture certified, etc. But there is plenty of supply chains that start in the north and animals grow out further south that are getting those premiums. And um, it's a great credit to some industry players who are doing that or maybe even just backgrounding the cattle and selling them on to somebody who is getting them into, well, feedlots and MSA grading or pasture certified um, markets, etc. which which is, you know, the grids are a great sort of um, give us the message on what the market requires and the price is usually where they've got the shortest amount of um, meat. And um, like we haven't got many feedlots north of about Rockhampton, but certainly um, we still can produce, you know, with a bit of crossbreeding with our Brahma breeder base, we can still produce an animal that can do the job for a lot of those southern people. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and there's plenty of people are selling cattle down south and there's plenty of people with properties further south to try and get into that market because the, the southern market is more stable, Jane, than the north, like the northern market where we've got you know, a lot of cattle going off and live export or... It's more volatile than the southern market, I, I, under, I, I think. You know, we, the southern markets where they've got a big domestic market, they've got a higher quality product usually, and we seem to wobble around a bit more up in the north here. With, and especially, you know, like a lot, in, when you're in overseas markets, the exchange rate affects the market. All sorts of other political things happen overseas. Viruses break out around the world and cause troubles. <laughs> You know, there's all sorts of other things that happen when you're in an export market compared to the stability of a domestic market situation. No, it's a really good point to make. Before we wrap it up, is there something on your list, Joe? That you just—I just saw you glancing <laughs> down. So, do we need I to? Think, 
Well, I think you, you, uh, you asked about the positives there, and um, there's there's endless amounts of things I could relate to of the properties I've been to and the families I've mixed with over the years of what a, what a fantastic their job they're doing in terms of running their businesses. And there's a lot of case studies um, that we are continually pumping out, and that's that's courtesy of uh, the producers that are doing a really good job, and um, that's what keeps us going is um, just seeing that. Do you think there is more willingness for people to share what they're doing? Like I just, you know, when mm. I was a kid, you, do, you know, you knew what your neighbours were doing, mm. but I guess that's part of the modern era of more communication, social media, newsletters, all of those sort of things, but you are more aware of what people are doing, yeah. and that surely has to be a good thing. Oh, I think so, yeah, yeah, you know, and, and I think... Producers really respect and value what other producers are doing, and that's that's so important in our role. Even with these sort of case studies, is getting that out there. And yeah, I think people are, you know, generally very willing to to share it. And even some of the um, when you when you do a few figures with them and say, well, do you mind us putting that in the case study? You know, obviously you're not delving into um, financial details, but even some of those profitability um, benchmarks, and they don't mind you including those. So yeah, I, I think that's really constructive and helpful for so many other producers. Mm. Yeah. Jane, I, I found it a bit of a light bulb moment um, when we started working with Alison Arad, um, who on a consultancy basis and now she's in our team and she concentrates on the business side of, of a beef business and that was a, a great revelation to me. Like I've been rabbiting on about production stuff over the years, you know, planting stylos, feeding phosphorus, you know, how you market and your cattle, you know, looking at, you know, trying to make more money out of your business. And when Alison come along and she started analysing the whole of their business, sort of, um, and it really enlightened to me maybe a lot of the reasons why people never change that much because they're under such constraints with how profitable their business was. And that was a real light bulb moment to me that you really need to have a bit of an understanding of everything in a business if you're really going to make a big impact if, if they've got issues. And that's more relevant now too. Like you can't afford to just sort of have a few cows in the back paddock and send them to the meatworks occasionally. Like you do need to be more accountable. It needs to be run as a bit. It's getting fairly, yeah, it's getting fairly tough and tight. So you do have to run a very good business. And Alison's expertise in that side of it was a great revelation to me that, yeah, there's, there's businesses and there's businesses. Like we often hear people in the industry saying you've got to be get big and get out. And industry and, and Alison's figures has shown that there's plenty of good small businesses and there's plenty of bad small businesses, but there's plenty of good big businesses, but there's plenty of bad big businesses. So, Saying that you got to get big to be, or get out to be relevant in our industry or make a make a bob in our industry is not right. No, it's not no. scale no. like that. No. Look, we're going to wrap it up pretty soon, but every guest on this podcast has asked the same question, and I guess we're all here for beef. So you know, I'm assuming you don't have vegetarian get-togethers when you have your team meetings. So, um, uh, when you're cooking dinner, Bernie, which I imagine would happen all the time, what's your go-to beef cut? Like not a fancy one. I want to know what do you, what are you cooking for your wife on a Wednesday night? Well, I'm I'm a big T-bone man myself, but <laughs> I do cook a very good curry. Oh, do you? Yeah, so I'm I'm a bit of a curry man. I've got a daughter who's a cooking um she's a cooking teacher at school, and I do pinch a bit of her stuff, but um I'm, I I I every man likes his steak and eggs and chips and bit of fried tomato or something but i'm a great curry man jane i, <laughs> I love I the cook, fact you got two in there at the same time i got i, I, I got a very mean curry and it's usually very hot 
Good. Plenty of beef. Plenty of beef. Excellent. Joe, what about you? Oh, I love a good rib fillet, but, you know, it's got to be, got to be that right thickness, you know, 20, 23 mil or whatever, but got to have that right and uh, always go. We've got fantastic um, meat science now and, and always go for that, that good product. P- pay the money and get good steak. Yeah. You're a quality man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, love it. <laughs> and you get a ruler out. You've got That's your, right, yeah. You got <laughs> we don't want it too thin. No, you've got a butcher on speed <laughs> That's dog. right. That's right. <laughs> There is an issue with the industry now, like, you know, tough meat has been, you know, like we've got a lot of competitors in the in the protein market now with, you know, chicken and pork and fish and et cetera. And we travel a lot and we eat out a lot and we do not find, you know, we go that many, the 70% of the places there where we buy steaks, they are tough. So even though we've got the supply chains, we've got the MSA, we've got grain-fed, pasture-fed, MSA, supposed to guarantee quality, Jane, we are still eating tough meat everywhere. And isn't that crazy? You'd think that, you I know... I am disappointed because yeah. the only place the money enters our supply chain is at, you know, the customer, whether it's at the butcher shop or the restaurant or the hotel, wherever you eat, you know, et cetera. And the meat is still appalling. You know, as a beef producer myself, as a beef advisor, I am appalled at how bad the product is. And we often, um, we've just had an episode in Townsville there where half a dozen of us bought meat, um, a well-known name that's won the bloody best steak in the world twice. And we went to this particular place and we paid $40 a meal and it was, we couldn't eat it. Oh, no. Well, we all started giggling and, and when we, when we went back to the when we went back to the people at the bar there about it there we all we did was get into a row. Oh gosh, they just they're not good at taking the the criticism then or constructive feedback. So and, it's, you know, it's still an issue for the industry. I, I don't know how we're going to get around that. And you can we can be out at Winton and get the best steak there's a pub, because that guy uh, wants to buy it. Doesn't and that's right. There's a pub in Winton there at Tats, and if you go there, mate, you'll always get MSA steak, whether it's grass or grain fed, and it'll be top notch. In the back of the, you know, and this is, yeah, well, this is the thing. And when you're talking about tough, rubbish steak, you're not talking about some, you know, very remote, never sees anyone restaurants. It's quite, it's quite, you know, populated areas too that you would Correct. think would be able to access good beef. Exactly on their doorstep. Yep. Yeah, mm. unbelievable. Well, actually, I had a friend who was a rural reporter um, a long time ago, but he said that he was doing a golf trip big you know i think it was nearly two weeks and he's a vegetarian and i sort of was quite surprised i'm like so what exactly are you eating on this trip and he's like oh no there'll be salads there'll be something i'm like nah you're just gonna get a lot of hot chips <laughs> so we we hope to see at beef week next year barbecues and all the stands and all the stalls uh, dishing out good quality beef. Oh, they will. No, Beef Australia, <laughs> it will be a terrific event. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time, Bernie English and Joe Rolfe, um, and we'll see you at Beef next year. Great. Thank you, Jane. Beef Australia is proudly supported by our principal partners. Thanks to the Australian Government Department of Agriculture, Water and the Environment, the Queensland Government, Meat and Livestock Australia and the Rockhampton Regional Council. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.